Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm joined by my friends and colleagues from Garden Organic, Chris Collins and Anton Rosenfeld. We've got a great episode this month with lots of practical advice on looking after your fruit trees and summer seed sowing. Yes, July is still a good month to get sowing to keep that veg coming. Chris tells us how he's dealing with horsetail weed and we pick Anton's brains on aphids, potato blight and that irritating little thing called a flea beetle. Earlier this year, Chris met Jekka McVicker, the queen of herb growing. She's such a towering figure in the growing world and a warm personality. I had no idea she played in a rock band or rode on Jamie Oliver's scooter. I think you'll love her herbal tips. As always, we're grateful to our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue. Chris and I love this website as you can get everything you need to help you in your organic growing. Just click on www.organiccatalogue.com. And if you're a member of Garden Organic, you'll get 10% off. You'll hear once again, we've had to record our chats remotely. It's not the same as sitting in the potting shed together. And I hope you can forgive the odd sound blip. But it's great that you can join us. And I hope you enjoyed this month's episode. Morning, Chris. How are you? Hi, Sarah. I'm fine, thank you. It's a very beautiful day here in North London, I'm happy to say. Yeah, we've had some mixed weather over the past month, so we're not going to talk about the weather, Chris. Last time we did, we said it was so dry. And then what happened? The heavens opened. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's over one or the other at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> I know. But I adore the month of July. You know, I live in the country and I'm surrounded by fields. And when I look out, these fields are golden with ripening barley and wheat. They're stunning. And the trees now are majestic with the deep green shade underneath. And it feels very still, you know, like nature is almost holding a breath after the rush of early summer growth. And I wonder, perhaps this is a time when us gardeners also can stop and take breath. What do you think? Yeah, I do. I agree with you. I think that it is time. If you tend to feel a bit more mellow about it all, don't you, this time of year? And I think nature kind of reflects that a little bit. You describe it beautifully. Um, yeah, I have still, I've still got my odd battle going on. I also have the, the dreaded horsetail, which I have to say, I cleaned it out a few weeks ago. No, four days ago, to be precise. And I went back yesterday and it put on four or five inches of growth. What are you doing with the horsetail, Chris? Because I'm sure other people have got this problem. Well, I think it doesn't like being disturbed. It's quite interesting. I did what I would always do with when I'm trying to clear an area. If you took over an allotment I'd, and you wanted to get rid of a lot, most of the weed, I put down a thick compost, I put down some cardboard, I put, and then I covered it in my picks and I left it for two years, in fact. And I took it up and it, it was beautiful soil. I had a fork through it. I put my hands through it. I thought, this is great. But actually, the horsetail did come back because it sits so low, deep in the soil. But what I've noticed is it doesn't like being disturbed. So I'm just pulling it, pulling it, pulling it. And then I'm putting it in a, in a compost bin at the bottom for just specifically pernicious weeds. But I reckon maybe the answer might be to make tea with it. What do you think, Sarah? I totally agree. I would put it in rather than a compost bin. I'd put it in a bucket or a big tank or something like that. And I would drown it. We know that horsetail is a very good source of silica. And I suspect there's some good minerals in there that if you can leach it out of the horsetail by drowning it, you've then got a, a good tea, what we call a tea, a liquid feed, 
which yeah. you can start putting out parts. And I quite like to think that then the horsetail is helping you rather than hindering you. Yeah, so I think maybe a little, maybe get an old water butt with a tap on it or something because there's quite a lot of it. That might be the answer. But it's horsetail aside, Sarah, it is a beautiful, beautiful. I don't want to put a damper on it. It's a beautiful, beautiful time of year, and I have just been so enjoying my both my balcony and my allotment. I'm just I'm just happy when I'm in those zones, and that's the important thing. Yeah, I agree. And I tell you what, I see July as being the month where I really look at my fruit. I grow apples, pears, cherries, blackcurrants, strawberries. I mean, I've got quite a lot going on the fruit front because I'm a great fruit eater. And July is really quite a busy month. So these are some of the jobs that I'm going to be doing. First of all, apples. I'm going to be thinning out all those little tiny fruits. I have to say it's my least favourite job because it feels all wrong. You look at at an apple tree that's got all these fruits on it and you think, fantastic. But actually, if you leave too many, you'll get just a whole load of rather small apples. So you get lots of small, hard little apples rather than a few nice big juicy apples, basically. That's the point. Exactly. So the plan is to thin out each cluster and get it down to ideally just a pear. Then you'll have decent sized and healthy fruits to eat in stores. First line of attack is take out any little fruit which are diseased or malformed take them out straight away and then take out the smallest ones in the cluster and the ones which are hidden from the sun so by the time you've done that you should be left with just two perfect fruits to ripen and you can also do it with pears there is a nice little video showing you exactly how to do it on the garden organic youtube page Now, while I'm doing that, I'm also checking the apple tree for any signs of this serious disease called powdery mildew. It's a fungal disease. It affects apples and it can also infect pear, quince, peach, um, even medlar. You'll know it straight away because it's got a silvery grey powder which coats the stems and the leaves. Cut it out straight away. When you cut it out, cut it into a bag because these fungal spores will get spread in the wind. So snip off the stem and leaf back to a healthy part of the branch as you go around the tree. And most importantly, when you've done it, wipe your secateurs clean, disinfect them, and then you won't be spreading it on any other tree. I think it's worth pointing out that because we've had dry weather, really dry weather, and it's now we've got thunderstorms and it's humid, it could be possibly a bad year for powdery mildew, couldn't it? I think there's a sort of, as the summer wears on, you might start to see it. I think you're absolutely right, Chris. On to more jolly things. You could protect your precious peaches by draping a fine mesh over the branches. That will keep the birds off them. Peaches, I always think, are so precious, you know, that you want to protect them as much as you can. Um, Make sure the mesh is is secure and that the wind doesn't blow it off or that birds can get underneath and get trapped. If you walk around um, my allotment site at the moment, it's quite weird. You've just got these the cherry trees mostly they all cover them because the cherries are all coming into fruit as well they've got this netting over it's quite alien looking you know what I mean yeah. as you walk around the side but their place is full of pigeons and they will strip everything oh, out if, if you don't protect they definitely will and I just see them as such precious fruit we don't live in Italy where they grow you know sure it doesn't I think in this country once you've got your peach or your cherry to fruit you want to hang you on to every that, single no. one of them oh, yeah. a peach straight <laughs> off the tree is just something else I agree and I'll tell you the my other favourite fruit is the blackcurrant and I'm beginning to strip those off and make blackcurrant jam and cordial but I don't grow gooseberries because I have terrible problems with gooseberry sawfly 
But if you do grow gooseberries, now is a good time to cut back some of the growth. If you've got your lateral shoots beyond the fruit clusters, cut back these shoots to three to five leaves, and that will allow the air to circulate. You want that lovely open growth habit, really, which means that diseases and pests and whatever can't congregate. Don't prune your black currants. Leave those until the winter and the plant is dormant. So, so what you're doing is the growth that's been put on since the flowering, since the flowers have, have gone over and started turning into fruit, you're cutting out that new growth, are you? Is that, is that fair? And also take out any crossing shoots in the middle of the bush. I think also I do with those as well is I tend to, they like to be caned. The leader likes to be caned, doesn't it? So that kind of keeps the plant open as well. Yeah, you can certainly train them. You can even train them into standards if you wanted wow. to. And then my final task in my fruiting month is keeping my raspberries healthy and I'll be pruning off any diseased leaves. Raspberry rust is quite a common fungal disease. It's rarely serious. It can cause early leaf drop. So why not get rid of those leaves, rake them up and remove them all. Don't leave them to reinfect the plant. You've given me an appetite. I feel quite quite hungry suddenly. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, a bowl of fresh fruit and some Yeah, you can't some be. Cream. And all the fact- the fact that it's organic as well, because we know that a lot of shop-bought stuff is quite heavily treated, isn't it? Especially soft fruit. So you know you're getting pure organic fruit when you grow it yourself like this. Absolutely. Now, Chris, what other jobs are there to do? Well, I think I've got keeping an eye on my compost bin because, again, it's been so dry. And I, I, what I've been doing is I've been watering it just to keep the moisture in there. Um, because obviously, because it's so dry, it will take longer to rot down. It will just sit if it's sit, not actually move. Um, I've also been really careful to cut up the stuff I'm putting in there. Like, obviously, my broad beans went in. I cut them down quite heavily just to make sure it's quite fine. I can't turn it because I moved it the other day. I tend to turn with my hands. And I moved it the other day and I had a, a little family of slow worm in there. So, oh, you know, fantastic. You know, yeah, I, was, I feel quite parental, actually, now suddenly. <laughs> because it's just like, it's such a nice treat, isn't it? Now and again, you get a little treat. And so, but I am keeping the moisture on it. And I am trying to put in the stuff as fine as possible to make it break down and not just sit there because of the dry weather. That's a good tip. Are you sowing? I've sown my winter veg. I've got beetroot, calabrese, Swiss chard and kale all sown and ready to go. I am exactly. You just pretty much named the stuff I'm going. I've got a lot of cauliflower here as well. That's quite small plants in cells. Um, I'm constantly sowing salad plants. I've had difficulty with the salad plants this year. They've not enjoyed this hot, dry weather. And because I was out the game in April, I wasn't irrigating as much as I should. But I'm going to carry on sowing. But I'm just going to transplant rather than sow them and drill straight into the ground. That's going to be my tactic. I don't know if you think that's a good idea, Sarah. I do think it's a good idea. And I also think this successional sowing is important because otherwise you do the classic of having 30 lettuce plants all coming to fruition and you give them away to neighbours and you eat as much as you can and then you've got nothing. So sow lettuces and all your other uh, salad leaves, keep sowing maybe every two to three weeks and then you've got that nice succession which will take you right through until September or so. Yeah, staggering is important, isn't it? Some crops don't perform so well, because obviously I've sowed rocket earlier in the season, that just bolted because of the heat. So you want to keep sowing, keep moving them in and staggering those those, uh, plants. Funnily enough, it's also not too late to sow your beans or peas even. I know we tend to think of these as spring sowings, but you will still get a crop before the end of the autumn. Yeah, it is. And I think the peas and beans, because they like wet feet, they struggled earlier in the year. So if yours aren't looking too clever, then just, just thicken them up with new plantings. Yeah. We've talked about carrot fly before. Have you had problems with carrot fly? 
we do have trouble with it on the site, but my carrots are not really that far advanced. Uh, they're not they're not ready to pull or anything, so I'm leaving them in situ. But if I did start to pull them, obviously I'd be very careful about uh, what I did with the foliage, that the leftover foliage, because that's what will attract them. If you do have a major problem, then barriers. We mentioned this before, didn't we? That though it's called the carrot fly, it's actually useless at flying. So <laughs> by barriers, you actually mean if you can put up some netting that need only be about a meter or so in height. Uh, some fine mesh rather, not netting, fine mesh, then the fly literally cannot fly over it. I've also got some growing in a big pot, the globe, the little one called globe in my in my polytunnel. And I think growing carrots in a pot up on a table, absolutely job I think done. Um, I think it's the Victorians always used to grow them in pots. And I think it's up to 30 centimetres, they can't fly above that height. So if you've got them in pots, then you, you get around that problem. I'm still checking for slugs, especially when it's been raining and when the ground is damp. I'm afraid slugs never let up, so I'm never going <laughs> to let up either. <laughs> there and I'm going, I've got the problem with the little kill slugs, the sort of subterranean ones, and they tend to come out. We had a lot of rain, the first real rain for a while here in London, and they sort of emerged. And, uh, and you just got to keep on the ball with them. I have a lot of small worm uh, salad plants in my cold frames in the polytunnel, and I notice if I lift the trays, because I water them, if I lift the trays, they're underneath the trays. So yeah. they're waiting for the night time, and they're going to come out and do the damage. So you need to be observation all the time. Yeah. Um, I'm cutting herbs and loving it, but I am actually leave some of them to flower. Things like basil, sage, thyme, they actually will be hugely loved by pollinators and other insects. Bees particularly buzzing around my salvia and my thyme. So don't cut all your herb leaves off. Leave some stems to flower and you will be very popular with the bees. In the herbaceous border, what are you doing there, Chris? Well, I'm just keeping an eye um, on the staking, obviously. Uh, I've got quite a lot of stuff in flower, Helianthus, um, uh, Coreopsis, so I make sure I deadhead as well, just to keep those flowers ticking over, making sure they're getting the water as well, keeping an eye on things like mildew, powdery mildew and stuff, which also can affect them this time of year. So again, just that lovely tick over gardening, just pottering around, seeing what's going on, doing those little jobs just to make sure your plants are happy. It's interesting you mentioned mildew. I have phloxes growing up against a nice old stone wall and they are always, they always pop hit by mildew yeah. yeah and the secret is just keep watering the wall sucks all of the, the um, moisture out of the soil and they don't get the rain that they should do so i water my phloxes i always remember when i was at westminster abbey with sweet peas they just would look so magnificent and you get to July, mid-July, and then boof, they would just get covered in it totally. And uh, you're right, keeping the, the surface roots nice and damp is the way to try and bat it off, I think. Mm. I also have a slight problem with rose black spot. I'm not too worried about it. It's not going to kill the rose. So again, I take off all the black spot leaves and destroy them. Uh, I don't want them to spread anywhere else. I don't leave them on the soil. You need to take it right away from the soil and from the plant. It's been incredible for roses this year. I mean, I've my walk, big walk around Enfield, you know, um, which I really enjoy because I'm nosy and I like looking at people's gardens. And it's just been a stupendous year. For roses, rhododendron and shrubs all seem to have performed. It's almost like they've enjoyed our absence as we've all been in <laughs> lockdown. And I've been so impressed with it. And my roses on my balcony have just been absolutely incredible. And, uh, yeah, they give me a lot of pleasure. I'm actually looking at one of my roses now through my window and it's not got a spot on it. But it is three stories up. Maybe that helps. OK, but what I do have is a lawn. But I'm not doing a lot to it, Chris, because I'm ah. not a perfect lawn person. I love the fact that it's got different flowers, it's all sorts of greens. It's like a tapestry for me, a tapestry of plants. 
it's a little ecosystem in its own right. And, and if you just want a lawn that's absolutely perfect, and you, uh, that's if you want to play bowls on it, you know, or a game of cricket on it. Otherwise, let those other plants come in. And it's they, obviously things like clover are incredibly important to pollinators, aren't they? And dandelion, and so. But you can still have a nice lawn with those plants present. And I think, well, you're right. This, this at the moment, because of the adverse weather, especially the heat, what a lawn will do if it's too uh, dry, it will just go yellow. It's a way of the plant protecting itself. It goes into hibernation. If you wanted to avoid that, especially this time of year, don't cut it so short. Leave two and a half centimeters on it, and get the scarifier, get a, like a lawn rake on it, and take out the thatch now and again, and that will tiller it up, thicken it. Do you know what I share my lawn with? It's a green woodpecker. Oh, brilliant. And he comes down this month, he does every year, and he's hunting for those little leather jackets that are hiding just under. We, we used to, on the parts, when, it, when I used to look after bowling greens, you'd put the sprinklers on, and all the leather jackets come to the surface, and this big bird party would take place where they'd all come down and feed. I'll never forget that. Oh, I just love the fact that we're sharing our growing areas, whether it's a balcony or whether it's a garden or an allotment. We're just sharing it, aren't we, with all the other wildlife? We have. I've got a great little story before uh, before we go, Sarah. I was I, my, I hadn't filled my feeder. My feeders are attached to the glass of my windows. You know, the ones that sucker on it, so I can get nice and close to them. And the other day, I hadn't filled it, and the, me and my wife were standing in the kitchen. I looked round, and the, the robin had come into the flat and sat on one of the houseplant pots and was looking at us both, basically saying, "Where's the grub, then, mate?" Come on, <laughs> feeders empty. Like, it was such a lovely little moment, you know. It actually felt part of the family suddenly. Our interview this month is with Jekka McVicker. Jekka revolutionised the herb growing in this country, making these precious plants accessible and teaching gardeners how to grow them. She set up her own herb farm in the West Country, which is open to the public to visit and attend courses. She's won numerous Chelsea and RHS gold medals and has written countless reference books on herb growing and cooking. Chris went down to meet her one cold winter's day. Well, I'm here with Jekka. Finally invited me up to Jekka's farm. Very pri- big privilege for me. We're having a cup of rosy on a rainy day. It's really nice to be here. It's an amazing place. I've just had a walk around with you. I suppose I should ask you a little bit about the background of Jekka's farm, how it all began. It began because Mac was working in space. Was <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I was at home with uh, just born and a one-year-old. And I was thinking, what can I do from home? Because he was gone three months I had no family backup and I wanted to do something other than just white bottoms. <laughs> and um, a girlfriend of mine, this absolute true story, came through the door and said, Jekka, I'm doing an Elizabeth David recipe. Can I help myself to some French tarragon from your garden? So I said, yeah, go and help yourself. And I thought, you can't buy French tarragon anywhere. This is 1983. Wow. And it wasn't available in the shops. You couldn't get hold of it anywhere. There was no fresh herbs in right. the shops. So that's not long ago. No, <laughs> no fresh herbs and hops. And garden centres had parsley, sage, rosemary and thyme. And that was it. And my garden had parsley, French and curly. French tarragon, not Russian. Apple mint, spearmint, peppermint, chervil, dill, oregano and oregano marjorana, sweet marjoram. All of them because my grandmother was a cook. My mother was a fantastic cook, but more so a fantastic gardener. Right. And she had a a vegetable garden. We were totally self-sufficient in fruit and vegetables. And uh, and herbs were her, if you like, the notes in her orchestra. Right. And so that that set the whole thing in motion. I had my own herb garden. Yeah. And so I'd been writing lists that day of what I could do from home. I'm a professional flautist. 
I can make things, you know, I love cooking. But it was just Ruth coming in and saying, can I have some French time? Wow, that's what triggered it. And I suppose if you were saying then, back then, there weren't herbs in the shops, etc. So the demand wouldn't have been massive to start with. Did you have to, was it a long build up, the business? No. Quick. <laughs> Far too quick. <laughs> By the time you come back, we'd got the Vegman's van and my first clients were local um, health food stores, a garden centre and Fortnum and Mason's. Wow. So some big names straight away then. Yeah, because they couldn't get fresh wow. herbs. They didn't exist. I suppose in these day and ages where we're actually spoiled for choice all the time, yeah. it's quite hard to imagine, isn't it, in a way? Yeah. And, and But I was so determined because the only herbs for sale in those days were the ones in yogurt pot. Do you have any, I know there's a big one talking about modern trends, do you have any sort of thoughts on medicinal plants? Because everyone kind of talk, seems to be talking about that at the moment. Yeah, I was brought up with herbs as my primary source of medicine. Okay. Mum never ever admitted to being a herbalist, but she would automatically give me herbs for basic everyday remedies. And I think we need to take responsibility for our own health. Being an oldie and coming up from the end of the war where rationing was just ending as I was growing up, mum made everything so that we could eat everything. She would give me things like dill for hiccups. She would give me chamomile if I had a sore tummy. And we can give ourselves those things. So natural remedies, basically. Yeah. No fanfare, nothing like that, just simple natural remedies. Exactly that. You know, if, if you've got indigestion, have a cup of tea made with mint mm. and fennel seed. Right. right. And especially if you're over 55, you shouldn't just drink straight peppermint because that will make, it's more, it gives you more indigestion. Right. So this is information we should be getting out there, I suppose, a bit more. Yeah. But I suppose in a way we are battling the pharmaceutical industry or all that kind of, course, of thing. And we're not allowed to say what will heal what. It is changing very fast. Q have done some fantastic research. They were researching into lemon balm, Melissa, yeah. um, in the treatment of Alzheimer's. They found it didn't have any effect on Alzheimer's. But what they did find out is fantastic for people suffering from stress. So if you're a stressy person, have a cup of lemon balm tea. Yes, it tastes a bit like stewed vegetables, but it doesn't matter. We can bear that. We can bear that. If it de-stresses us. Exactly. (laughs) If it de-stresses you, then it is absolutely superb. Yeah. You know, and equally, if you're doing an exam and you're getting all uptight, nor I'm giving a talk and I'm really worried about remembering my things and getting things out quick enough, because when I get nervous, my brain sees itself, I, I will always have a cup of rosemary tea. Right which is fantastic. It's a calming effect. No, it brings everything to your front-end wow. memory here. I'm going to try this. Rosemary tea is amazing. It also yeah. cures a hangover, by the way. Does it? But you only need... <laughs> I've got two reasons now. <laughs> you, only, you only need a sprig. Right. Right. So you take two that cent- from your plant. Two centimetres uh-huh. in a mug, add boiled water, let it stand for five minutes, strain, add honey if you wish. Wow. I'm cough. learning a lot today. For coughs, you see, for coughs and colds, it would be time and hyssop. Amazing combo. Touching on the shows, Chelsea got 62 medals, am I right? In 1992, it was a very hot summer, and um, garden centres suddenly turned around and said, no, we don't want you to have your herbs. No one's shopping. And uh, so I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with all these plants? We're going to go under. You know, we, life was such a knife edge. I was moaning to the, the then Noel Kingsbury, who's now a doctor, Noel Kingsbury, and he was exhibiting at the RHS. 
wearing his red trousers. And <laughs> he said, Jack, don't moan, go and exhibit at the RHS. So in 1992, I applied. Pippa Sargent was the then head of shows with, with Stephen Bennett. I got into the October show. Oh, my goodness. Taking herbs into London. So we borrowed my neighbour's horse box <laughs> and we put on an exhibit. And in those days, you couldn't sell until you got a silver medal. And so it meant you had to go to London and stand. And try and win a silver medal. And, and try and win a, a, a silver medal and stand there for two days, having built a stand. Oh, my goodness. I can't tell you. Anyway, I got a silver medal and I got Mavis Sweetingham. <laughs> yeah. He came up and said, Jacka. We'd like you to apply to Chelsea. So into a call box I went and I rang home. I said, Mac, they want me to apply for Chelsea. And uh, Mac said, oh, I don't think you can. What about the children? I said, you don't say no to Mavis. <laughs> <laughs> and Mac's your husband, I must yeah. point out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was it. That yeah. was the whole start. So I then changed from just being wholesale and doing shows. I've got 62 RHS gold medals. Wow. 14 from Chelsea. And I got the Lawrence medal for my 2009 Chelsea exhibit. Because that's a lot. I mean, I do shows here and there, but I know how intense they are and how much work goes into them. So that's a lot of, lot of work, isn't it? It's gone into those medals. A, a lot of work. And so that, in a way, I should imagine you were quite pioneering again, actually. You, you were blazing the trail, weren't you? Well, it was blazing a trail. I was the very first organic stand. Yeah, so I was going on to my next question really is I know you're very very organic but very important to you isn't it so hugely how, so how where does that come from what what was I read Anne Balfour's book and Lawrence um, um, HDRA Mr Hills our, uh, our founder that's it I understood about the importance of being part of the chain we are so arrogant as humans that we don't understand that if you do not have the pollinating insect you do not have food. If you do not have the plant that feeds the pollinating insect, you do not have food. And it was then that I learnt that plants can survive without us, but we in this planet cannot survive without them. Remember, I'm a recycled hippie, so this is quite a good follow-on. I mean, yeah, so it's not rocket science for me to get there. But I wanted to be peat-free, and I remember going around all those shows and being laughed at by all these people. Oh God, here she is. She wants her, she wants her peat-free compost. Ha ha ha! I think, oh goodness. I said, don't you understand? And don't you understand about? I mean, I was banging on about climate change then. Yeah, it's not new, is it? This stuff isn't new. You see, I I can't get on. I can't get my head around the people that do not understand mm. there's climate change. I remember giving a talk at Malvern and being laughed at there. Mm where they said, no, I wasn't talking about climate change, I was talking about weather. And I was saying, no, you've got to realise, I didn't show you, I have kept records here wow. and have done ever since I've been here. You know, and I can tell you how much warmer we are than last year. Wow. You know, I mean, I've got all the records. Being part of that cycle, you look at the cycles of the weather. But what we have now is we have more. Yeah. When I started in horticulture, we had rain. You know, that sort of hazy rain thing. We now have deluge, so I select times which keep their crowns, their flowers, proud of the crown because when you have these deluges, it flattens them into the crown and then they rot. So you're growing then, picking varieties or uh, deliberately to suit the fact that our weather gets much wetter than it used to. It's more yeah. notes violence. Right. It's the violence of the weather. A horrendous wind, horrendous rain, now horrendous floods. 
Do you understand? It's, mm. it's magnitude. And, and when I had my first talk on climate change, which must have been in the 80s, they were saying about the wind and how powerful the wind's going to be with climate change. And everyone did laugh at me. Oh, don't be silly, Jack. It's just a phase we're going through. Now, will you please wake up? <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> so do you think horticulture's taking this on board? Do you think the future of horticulture is going to be looking a lot different? Do you th- um, no, I don't think they've woken up. Don't you at all, no. I think there are a few gardeners that have taken it on. Yeah. And understand, because they're out in it every day. The small nurseries have taken it on, because they're surviving in it. Yeah. But I think big horticulture, because it's so big, and it can be moved around the world, yeah. then they are not noticing. They're not understanding also about soil, about renewing the soil, about the soil being the engine of the garden. Part of my, you know, my whole cycle thing is, you know, you have got to treasure soil. Yeah, it's our foundation, isn't it? Well, which is also you said you mentioned on it a minute ago about um, supermarkets mass producing herbs. It, you, mm. what, what difference between what herb you produce and the herb they produce? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Supermarkets will grow herbs, and it's an amazing technique. From seed to sale, it is 28 days. I mean, just think about that. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm still in prop in 28 days, mm. and this, I'm not even potted up. You've got to realise the perspective of this. It's a huge skill, but they're not designed to grow in your garden. So you're getting what you call, I would, yeah, a soft plant. It's been molly so it's almost like, you know, you, it's grown up in Buckingham Palace and then it gets out into the real world. It's that sort of analogy, isn't it, in a way that it, it's been molly Yeah, yeah, exactly. More than yeah. Buckingham Palace. Right. Buckingham Palace is really rather nice. Well, <laughs> I'm going Buckingham Palace down here. Yeah, I'm not, but yeah. That's, I've been there. I've walked up the stairs. <laughs> so the hospital's a good analogy then. It's, it's come from this intensive care. You, exactly. You, yeah, exactly yeah. that. Yeah. Right, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But actually you stopped exhibiting in 2009. Mm. And then you just, so you're, you had paid a big role obviously looking at the people coming through. Yes. And How's that looking to you, though, this new generation? is that Nurseryman. Look- Nurseryman. Do you think it's a dying art in many ways? No, I think it's prohibitively expensive yeah. to set up a nursery. I think it's nearly impossible to make a living. You see, each nursery will have its unique collection. Mm. And so every day that anyone goes to a specialist nursery or buys from a specialist nursery, so much the better. And you're more likely to be organic, aren't you, than uh, than, uh, a lot of the big growers as well. So environmentally, you'll probably have a lot more to offer. Yeah, because we are oddballs. We aren't great money people. We are preserving the future Mm. of the planet. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, what, if you had advice to the sort of up-and-coming organic gardener or nursery, what, what, would any, what advice would you give them? Only do it as a profession if you're passionate. Yeah. You cannot do it half-hearted. This is a life thing. It is like recognising climate change and understanding the implications of that and how we should adjust our lives accordingly. So all of us need to wake up to who we are. Would I do it again? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I've had the most amazing time. Come yeah. on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who'd have thought? I mean, yeah. Who'd have thought that I would ride on the back of Jamie Oliver's moped? <laughs> That's that made brilliant. my day. I mean, who'd have thought I, I would meet the Queen? Yeah. Who, to me, is the most amazing woman out. I think you kind of hit it early, that straight away. You, you have that passion and it. it's infectious. And I think everything springs from there, doesn't it? If you, yeah. I think that if you try to do gardening without that, that, that close up. I'll give you an example. I think I fell in love with gardening in November when my steel toe cap boots were freezing in the second year of my apprenticeship because the low winter sun, the feel of being around the plants, I think that's when you connect with it. It's not for, you know, it's not an academic thing, is it? You need yeah. to kind of get it into your soul, don't you? 
Yes. So it's a tough business. It's a tough it's business. It's a tough business. But that, luckily, having been in a rock band, yeah. which was amazingly tough. I was going to come on to that. because I. But it was yeah. amazingly tough. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you think, I played at the very first Glaster. Right. I was the first group on when he was called the Pilton Blues Festival. Right? Yeah. And he built the stage out of his milk crates. Yeah, yeah. With wooden planks on wow. top. And we were paid in milk. <laughs> so it's a colourful life you've got Doctor Who in there somewhere haven't you oh yeah when I went into the BBC and asked to be interviewed as you could in those days and I got a job in drama serials so I was practising and the then producer of Doctor Who uh-huh. they said will you will you teach me the flute and in exchange I will get you a part in Doctor Who so I played in the Green Death I earned <laughs> more money playing in the Green Death than I ever did as a rock star <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I couldn't think of a more inspirational person to speak to. I really couldn't. It's been a real pleasure, Jekyll. Well, Thank you great. very much. Chris spent quite a bit of time with Jekka walking round her herb farm, and here are some snippets of their conversation as they discussed growing techniques. We'll be releasing their full conversation in our Unpruned podcast later in the month. Be sure to subscribe to the Organic Gardening Podcast and then you won't miss a thing they say. So this is a new variety of thyme that yeah. you, you've grown for the first time. I grew it from seed last year, so I've chosen the strongest ones. So these are all in cells, these cuttings yeah. then? So in, these in, are all seeds. Now, when I, this is something I developed myself and then I was told this is nothing new. I propagate under mist and I've got a heated bench here and it's heated to halfway. Okay. And what I wanted to do was put my seeds and my cuttings on at the same time. I didn't want to, you know, because I've got things going through all the time. Yeah. And I worked out, if I covered my seeds in perlite... I see the perlite there, yeah. ...which is the white volcanic waste stuff, rather than the vermiculite, Uh which holds water, this doesn't, the seeds I could have on at the same time as cuttings. And it reflects the light, so we get really good germination. It it reduces damping off, basically. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Okay, that's interesting. This is one of my new ones. This is Jekka's Autumn Pink. Autumn Pink, right. And it has flowered, I'm not kidding, it has flowered since October. And I've had a flower on there all the way through. All the the way through the winter. I mean, for winter colour then, that's got massive potential, has it? uh, No, it's not just, it's for me, for nectar plants and my bees. It's so important to have a winter nectar. Amazing. So you've got five raised beds here of thyme alone. So how many varieties are in here then? Uh, I've only got about 60 of my is, is that all? 70 60? Odd. Is that all? And if you want to hear the full interview with Jekka and join Chris as he walks around the herbarium with her, it'll be in our next Unpruned podcast later this month. Don't forget to subscribe, then you won't miss a thing. So now it's time to open the post bag and I'm joined by Hannah. Hi, Hannah, Anton and Chris. Hi. Hello, Sarah. Hi, guys. Um, Hannah, you've got our first question. I have, yes. So someone's contacted us and said they'd like to grow rocket, but when they tried last year, it got ravaged by tiny beetles. So can we tell them what they are and how they manage them organically? Anton, is that something you can help with? Well, this beetle is the flea beetle. Um, What you tend to notice, first of all, is that there are lots of little holes in your leaves of your plant. We notice it most in rocket because we like to eat the leaves. Um, It's not so much of a problem, perhaps if you're growing something which is a bit bigger. Let's say you're growing calabrese or broccoli or something like that, because basically the plants just tend to grow through it. Um, The way to recognise these beetles is they're just a couple of millimetres long. 
and they're shiny black beetles. But the thing that really stands out is if you touch them, they jump like a flea. So that's the really sort of definitive way of noticing that you've got flea beetle there. I must admit, I'm a big believer in trying to make things easy for myself. And I struggle to grow rocket in early summer just because for two reasons. One, that it tends to bolt very quickly. And that's in response to the days getting longer. Um, so if you plant rocket after the longest day, it's much less likely to to bolt. But secondly, it's just it really does get a lot of problems with this flea beetle earlier on in the summer. So I actually tend to grow rocket more as a sort of late summer or even as a winter crop, just because you've got so many other things growing over the summer. Chris, do you like rocket in your salad? I love. Though, I, ab- I absolutely love rocket. I'm a rock, rocket fanatic. It has to be said. And normally I have great success with it. It's rocket by name, rocket by nature, isn't it? it um, it certainly puts a shift on once it's it's happy. But this year, I have to say, I've been devastated by flea beetle. Um, also, it's funny, Anton uh, referenced it there. I, I've had the trouble with it bolting as well because it's been so dry. And I think the plant's been weak from the start and that, so the flea beetles come along and cleaned up. But what I've done is I do have a, a, a netted polytunnel and I've just been growing it in troughs in there. And that in there, it's been fine So because it's netted. I've had no problems with it at all. So I've had that to fall back on. I'm now starting to grow it again. I tend to grow rocket all year round if I can or as much the year as I can so what I'm going to do now is I think I'm going to grow it all in cells in like a compartmentalized seed tray I'll grow it in there first and then I'll plant it out as a bigger plant and I'm hoping the maturity of the plant will help bat off the flea beetle and are there any natural predators that you can encourage to to perhaps help keep the population down okay yeah there are some natural predators they don't have a massive effect on them but there there are brackened wasps which can keep the numbers down you do the normal thing for attracting predators is basically um, having lots of flowering plants around and particularly things in the umbiliferous family of the carrot family and um, fennel is a good one and um, that will help to bring them in but I, I often find that it's quite a sort of losing battle it is hard to keep them under control okay that's great thank you and um, so the next question has come from a keen grower who like anton loves their green manures so they're asking which ones would you recommend sowing or planting this month and why? And I guess we should start off there for a, a, maybe a brief overview on what a, what a green manure actually is. Yeah, a green manure, it doesn't actually contain manure at all. It's a bit of a sort of confusing name for it. It's actually a plant that is grown purely to improve the soil. And then usually you cut it down and you might either dig it in or you leave it on the surface to to sort of rot down. So it's purely to improve your soil and it's very important thing to be doing to really sort of look after your soil because having a healthy soil is important for having healthy plants so this time of year things will grow pretty quickly um so vetch would be a good one to grow because it grows really quickly and it will give things a quick fertility boost to the soil vetch is quite a good one as well because if you sowed it now you could either cut it down in time for growing something over the winter or you could if you wanted to leave it over the winter and and cut it down the following spring so it's quite flexible that's a a good one there are a few others you could try as well and facelia is quite a nice one because it's rots down pretty quickly when you when you cut it down it stays nice and soft that won't add fertility to the soil but it will help to increase its organic matter and um, improve its soil structure Um, Another one I quite like as well is buckwheat, just because it's so quick to grow and it's very soft as well. So those are three sort of easy ones you could try. 
Can I ask a question, Anton? I'm, yep. I'm just wondering whether you can, can you underplant with green manures? So if you had plants growing, could you grow those plants through a green manure? Yes, you you can, um, but it's getting that balancing act. You don't want a green manure that's too vigorous because otherwise it's almost acting like a weed and competing against the plant. So that's something we're actually trying in our members' experiments this year. We're, we're trying yellow trefoil, which is a green manure that's a lot less vigorous. It grows quite flat. Um, so we're growing those under our French beans. And what will happen is when you harvest the French beans, the yellow trefoil will already be growing there, ready for the winter to protect your soil. Brilliant. It's really useful because I think I know I certainly struggle and I think probably a lot more newer growers will do too, that you, you get all built up for the growing season. And as you start to harvest things, you kind of don't then think ahead. So it's yeah, it's useful to know that there's things that we can start putting in now as that, that soil becomes bare. Thank you. So the third question um, is all about potatoes. So someone's contacted us and said that their potatoes were doing really well this year. But since the recent rain, they've noticed the leaves are getting brown blotches on them. And can we help? Is it the dreaded blight or is there something else going on here? Chris, is that something you can help with? Well, I've, I've noticed some brown blotches on my uh, potatoes, actually. Um, but they were before the rains. And I, I kind of always keep a little bit of an eye on it because I know there is blight on my allotment site. But it also, also I mean, I, I dug in some compost before I planted the potatoes, but I didn't put any potash down. So I'm wondering whether it might be a fertiliser problem as well. I've, so at the moment i'm just keeping an observation on it if i do think it's blight i would be probably intend to dig them up and then i probably not want to put them on the compost heap i'd be nervous of that maybe anton could tell me a little bit more yeah i'd agree with you chris um it's not necessarily blight i mean potatoes get all sorts of brown marks on the leaves and it's quite likely to be nutrient deficiency just because it's been so dry so even if there are enough nutrients in the soil does the dryness mean that the 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 potatoes are not taking up the fertilizer exactly yeah it takes a little bit of experience to to recognize the difference between blight and a nutrient deficiency it's probably good to look at some photos on the internet it's probably the easiest thing thing to do I, I would say blight has got a slightly more sort of greyish tinge to it on, on, and the sort of marks are about the size of a penny and often close to the edges of the leaves. But have a look at some photos because one, once you get your eye in, it's quite easy to notice the difference. So if you decide it is blight, what's the plan of action? If it is blight, what I would be doing is having a, a good look on a regular basis. And it's really a question of how much is there. If, if, if it's more than about sort of one in 10 of your plants have got it, I would certainly be cutting down the leaves. And what people tend to do is leave the tubers in the soil for about a couple of weeks because that allows the skins to set and then they're less susceptible to being infected by the blight fungal spores. It is actually okay to put the leaves in your compost because they will just dry out and the fungus will die. But don't don't put any infected tubers into your compost because they will grow into infected plants in your compost bin and be a source of blight. I suppose also it's important that you don't grow potatoes on that bit of ground. Again, the old um, rotation is an important part of it if you think that blight's been in that soil. That's right. 
I mean, I mean, surprisingly, actually, blight doesn't survive in the soil, but it might you might have tubers left which are infected. So, yes, it is it is good practice not to be growing potatoes for about the next four years. There really is good practice. OK, so can I just check the infection starts in the leaves. So if you do have blight, you'll first see it in the leaves and it may just be that your tubers are unaffected yet. So you can cut down the leaves. And does it you were saying to leave the tubers in the ground? for a couple of weeks do you then expect them to regrow healthy plants or is that just to make it easier to dig them up it's just to make them easier to dig them up they won't the tubers won't be ready to regrow into into new plants no okay so on to our last one and this isn't really a question but uh, perhaps a point of discussion and um, we've had a lot of people contact us saying they've had trouble with aphids this year and I know it's something that we've experienced at home is anyone else finding the same are they particularly prevalent this year Oh, I think it's been the year of the black fly. I've never seen so many black fly in my life. I think they've enjoyed this sort of warm spring. My broad beans, which I took out a couple of weeks ago, actually at the end, after I pulled them up, my hands were black with black fly. It was unbelievable. And I kind of waited. I remember posting something on Twitter with a picture of a ladybird, a ladybird larvae on the plants saying, oh, these troops are going to sort this out for me. But the infestation was so massive. I actually had to lift the plants in the end. I do have a, quite a few on my runner beans as well, and I'm keeping a careful eye on that. But I am resorting to an organic spray, which is always a last resort for me, to be honest with you. I prefer to leave it to nature. But I wonder whether anyone else has had this incredible infestation of blackfly this year. Um, you're not going to like this, Chris, but I, <laughs> my broad beans, and I grow field beans as well. And I, I mean, often I do get a problem with them, but I just don't seem to have a problem. Just <laughs> I'm going to send you some of mine. <laughs> There's no need to gloat, Anton. <laughs> Having said that, in my glass house, I was getting quite a few green fly on my peppers. And I was like you, Chris, thinking, well, should I be using a soap spray or not? But over the last couple of weeks, I've noticed quite a few sort of, well, they're sort of swollen up aphids with empty shells. And they've been parasitized by a small it's a tiny little black wasp. They really they're really small to see. If you look carefully, they dance around and then inject their eggs into the aphids. And what happens is that the larva of the wasp lives inside the aphid and eats its way out. And then just like <laughs> they, a horror film, isn't it, really? <laughs> it, it is like a horror film. And if you actually look on the empty shells of these parasitized aphids, you can see a little hole where the adult wasp has chewed its way out. So it is just like something on a horror film. And th this is basically clean up my aphid problem i've got just got a load of empty shells i've still got a few aphids left but there's hard not that many left anymore for the, for the organic gardener that's the perfect outcome isn't it it really is yeah yeah basically if i i've now got that wasp keeping control of those aphids where if, whereas if i sprayed them all with soap spray there wouldn't have been any sort of food for that parasitic wasp sarah have you had much of a problem well i did in the earlier months but now in july i have to say my aphid population seems to have fallen off quite a bit I have watched the ants farming the aphids. I've watched, you know, the ants climbing up the tree and keeping the aphids happy. That was on my cherry tree, particularly. They loved the new soft growth on the cherry tree. But there is something about July where I think the numbers drop off. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this. 
It is actually a well-known phenomenon that we don't actually understand very well yet. And we do see that numbers of predators and parasites really do increase in July. There's also there are these um, fungi which infect aphids as well. They're called entomopathic fungi and they are just disgusting. If you thought the thing about the parasitic wasp was gross, then just have a look on the internet about these. I'm just wondering whether we shouldn't X-rate this podcast. <laughs> Parental advisory. It's interesting though, isn't it, that it, um, nature always comes up with the answer. The fact that there's been so because I've noticed there's nowhere near as many black fly on my runner beans as there was on my broad beans earlier in the year. So numbers must be decreasing because the infestation was so big. So maybe you're right, things come along and they naturally balance that out. But it has been a bumpy year for the black fly. I'd say that nature has the answer, but it doesn't seem to have any manners or decorum. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Sarah, you casually dropped something into your comment about ants farming aphids. Tell me what, what you mean by that. That sounds interesting. Well, what happens is the ant really likes the sweet secretion which the aphid gives out. When the aphid is eating the uh, plant, it can't actually absorb all the cellulose from the plant. It's trying to get to the protein of it, basically. And it will secrete the waste matter as a kind of sweet, sticky fluid. It's, it's rather charmingly called honeydew. Scale insects do the same thing. And ants adore the sweet, sticky fluid, so they will look after the aphids because they want that sweet fluid. So by farming them, I mean they will allow the aphids to come into their nest. They'll keep them safe from predators. And if the aphid has the nerve to fly away, then the ant will actually bite off the wings of the aphid. So the ant, there's this weird sort of codependency relationship between the ant and the aphid. And you can take your pick as to which one you're going to deal with first if it's a real problem. Both will hate being blasted by a jet of water, a strong jet of water. And in my case, on my cherry tree, what I did was I wrapped grease bands around the base of the trunk and that stopped the army of ants going up the tree and looking after the aphids. It's fascinating. It's all this life that goes on in, in small scale that you, you don't even realise half the time. It's, yeah, it's really fascinating. Uh, absolutely, Hannah. And of course, the birds are loving it because they've got all that insect life on which they can feed. So it is that wonderful interdependency, that chain of existence that's so fascinating about watching in a natural organic garden. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Well, what a month for pests and diseases. But how wonderful that nature provides her own checks and balances. I hope you're enjoying your own growing adventures and you're already picking your own super healthy organic fruit and veg. Thank you for listening. Now, don't forget, when you turn off, Subscribe to the Organic Gardening Podcast and you've got two exciting episodes ahead of you. The full interview of Jekka and Chris walking around her herb garden. And in August, we'll have Mark Diacono, an ardent organic grower and a chef who chats with Chris about his time working at River Cottage. Until then, bye for now. Our thanks to our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue and to Kevin McLeod for providing the music. <laughs>